Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I Should Not Call Any Man Unclean. Peter the Apostle Meets Simon the Tanner. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 21st, 2013. The beloved physician Luke is the only Gentile to write a book of the Bible. His book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. His plot begins with a tiny and fearful sect of Jews huddled behind closed doors in their sacred city. It ends with a vibrant movement in the capital city of one of the greatest empires in history. The final sentence of Acts describes how in Rome, Paul preached the good news of God's love boldly and without hindrance for two years. This week's text marks a transition in Luke's narrative, where he ends one section and begins another. He does this several times in Acts by summarizing how the Jesus movement was spreading like wildfire. In Acts 9.31, he writes, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Luke then pivots from Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 to Peter's conversion in the house of Simon the Tanner in Acts 10 and 11. As Peter traveled around the country, he stopped in Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv. If Joppa rings a bell, you're not mistaken. About 800 years earlier, Joppa was the seaport city where Jonah fled from the Lord because as a Jew he was repulsed at God's call to preach to the pagan Ninevites. Luke puts Peter in this same city. He gives him a similar call. Only Peter didn't make the same mistake as Jonah. The story is really about raising a widow named Dorcas from the dead. But the last sentence in Acts chapter 9, 36 to 43 includes a revealing detail. Luke writes, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. When he begins a new story about a Roman soldier Cornelius just a few sentences later, Luke repeats himself. Send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner. And just in case you missed it, one page later, Luke writes a third time. Send a Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner. <clears throat> if you go to Israel today, you can still visit the home of Simon the Tanner. Why is this incidental detail so important to Luke? Simon was a socioeconomic outcast. He lived on the margins of society, 
He was a dirty man in both a literal and figurative sense. Tanners worked with dead animals. The filth and stench were awful. Just imagine how Simon looked and smelled at the end of a hot day. He would have been the object of social disdain. Almost anyone would have felt superior to him. But Simon the Tanner had joined the Jesus movement and found acceptance there that society never gave him. Simon the Tanner was also a religious outcast. His story shows how the early believers struggled with Jewish laws about ritual purity as Gentiles began to join their movement. To take one example, we have neighborhood friends who follow Jewish dietary laws to keep kosher by eating only what is fit or clean. The word kosher comes from the Hebrew word kasher. One way to express your relationship to the holy God is by not defiling yourself with dirty food. In the case of Simon the Tanner, handling animal carcasses was expressly forbidden by Jewish purity laws in Leviticus chapter 11, 39 to 40. Such dietary and animal restrictions comprise only a tiny part of a comprehensive and complex holiness code that regulated one's personal life in the Jewish community 3,500 years ago. The Levitical purity laws regulated nearly every aspect of being human, birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, behavior, agricultural practices, and ethnicity, because Gentiles were automatically considered impure. The laws even prohibited tattoos. Some of these purity laws encoded common sense or moral ideals that we still follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still other purity laws symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated it from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, the purity laws ritualize an exhortation from Yahweh. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It was thought that only people who are ritually clean may approach a holy God. And at the center of this purity system, both literally and figuratively, stood the temple and its priests, where one performed rites of purification before entering the Divine Presence. Scholars debate how much ordinary first-century Jews maintained ritual purity. But the Pharisees, about whom we read so much in the Gospels, definitely did. They repeatedly criticized Jesus because of his casual disregard for ritual purity. Jesus the Jew touched a leper, ignored Sabbath laws, 
touched a woman with a bodily discharge, befriended Gentiles, and handled a corpse. People complained that his disciples ate with unclean hands and that they didn't fast. Given our human propensity for justifying ourselves and scapegoating others, the purity laws encouraged a moral hierarchy between the ritually clean, who considered themselves to be close to God, and the unclean, who were shunned as dirty sinners who were far from God. Instead of expressing the holiness of God, ritual purity became a mean of excluding people who were considered polluted or contaminated. At a minimum, Jesus redefined ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. Simon the Tanner was at the bottom of this spiritual stratification. And notice Luke's irony. It's in the home of Simon the Tanner, a Gentile who handled animal carcasses every day, where Peter the conscientious Jew had his vision of unclean animals. Peter learned that even though purity laws forbid him to associate with Gentiles, Luke writes, quote, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. <clears throat> Marcus Borg argues that Jesus turned the purity system with its sharp social boundaries on its head. In its place, he substituted a radically alternative social vision. The, the new community that Jesus announced would be characterized by interior compassion for everyone, not external compliance to a purity code, by egalitarian inclusivity, rather than by hierarchical exclusivity, and by inward transformation rather than outward ritual. In place of the famous, be holy for I am holy, says Borg, Jesus substituted the call, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. In his book, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills writes, No outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. And, we might add, not Simon the Tanner. John's text in Revelation 7, 9-17 this week expands God's vision of inclusion to quote every nation, tribe, people, and language. God, he says, will wipe every tear from every eye. I found it humbling to ask, what outcasts do I sanctimoniously spurn as impure, unclean, dirty, contaminated, and far from God. Maybe the mentally ill, people with multiple marriages, wealthy executives, welfare recipients, conservative politicians, 
or maybe just about anyone different from me. How have I distorted the self-sacrificing love of God into self-serving elitism? What boundaries do I wrongly draw, or might I break? I pray to experience what Marcus Borg calls a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos and politics of compassion. For books this week, I review a volume of poetry. The author is Wendell Berry. The title, A Place in Time, 20 Stories of the Port William Membership. Berkeley Counterpoint Press, 2012, 241 pages. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 to a family that had farmed Kentucky land for five generations. After studies and travels took him to the University of Kentucky, Stanford, France, Italy, and the Bronx, in 1965 he bought his own farm near his birthplace. He's been tilling the earth and churning out books ever since. Over 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned him numerous awards as one of the leading truth-tellers of our day. This collection of 20 short stories, all of which were previously published in various magazines and journals, continuing, continues, Wendell, continues Wendell Berry's ongoing depiction of the people of Port William. Port William is a fictional town on the banks of the Kentucky River that is generally regarded as reflecting Barry's real life and times in Port Royal, Kentucky. The fictional Port Williams is the setting for as many as 18 previous books by Barry. The town is also mentioned in a number of his poems. The stories in this volume date from 1864 until 2008. The book even includes a map of the fictional town and a family tree of the characters. Not much, not much happens in these stories, which is a way of saying that we experience the sacred in the ordinary. In his essay, Imagination in Place, Barry says of Port William, I have, I have made the imagined place of Port William, its neighborhood and membership, in an attempt to honor the actual place where I have lived. By means of the imagined place, over the last 50 years I have learned to see my native landscape and neighborhood as a place unique in the world, a work of God, possessed of an inherent sanctity that mocks any human valuation that can be put upon it. Barry's notion of membership in the Port William signifies life in a particular community in a particular time and place. In another essay, the character Burley Coulter sounds suspiciously like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Burley Coulter says, the way we are, we are members of each other 
all of us, everything. The difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. Wendell Berry, A Place in Time, 20 Stories of the Port William Membership. For movies this week, I review Silver Lining Playbook. Dark clouds can have silver linings. That's Pat's mantra when he moves back home with his parents after eight months in a psychiatric hospital for bipolar disorder. He's working hard to become a better person so that he might win back his former wife, Nikki. He's losing weight, jogging, going to therapy, working with a restraining order, and struggling with his medications. He meets another bird with a broken wing, Tiffany, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who's likewise struggling with major life traumas after her husband was killed. Pat and Tiffany decide they can help each other instead of judge each other. And this leads to new places neither of them expected. All four major characters in this film received Oscar nominations for their sensitive and at times funny portrayal of mental illness. Silver Lining Playbook. <clears throat> and finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a favorite poem from mine by St. Brendan the Voyager, an Irish monk who lived from 484 to 577. It's called the Journey Prayer. God bless to me this day. God bless to me this night. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. Bless, O oh bless, thou God of grace, each day and hour of my life. God bless the pathway on which I go. God bless the earth that's beneath my soul. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. O God of gods, bless my rest and my repose. Bless, O God, and give to me thy love. And bless, O God of gods, my repose. The Journey Prayer by St. Brendan the Voyager. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 21st, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.